Hello, and welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it comes from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So, I know that I promised Robert Loth in the last episode, but I wanted to cut someone in here. I also know this is the second time that I've ended the episode with a promise and then didn't release that episode. The last time was a source issue, though. Sometimes you request a book from the library and it just doesn't make it in time. And perhaps it will come in and I will get to Vetstein, but I'm still on hold with that one. So... Don't hold your breath on that episode coming out. Maybe, maybe not. I don't have the sources I was hoping for. However, this time I'm putting off Loth because I think today's teacher is a good contrast with the last few episodes that we've been doing, and specifically with one from a long time ago, but I'm right now thinking of the last few episodes we've been doing. I've been talking about writers who use critical approaches to the Old Testament or philosophical approaches to the Old Testament, mainly Enlightenment ones. However, Abraham Kalov is the exact opposite of these. While the previous subjects were reinterpreting the text and questioning traditional orthodoxy, Kalov was using the text to defend Orthodox Lutheranism. I would even say that he is overly Orthodox, And while I can appreciate his viewpoint generally, I personally think that he goes a little far in trying to read Christian viewpoints into the Old Testament. But I'll talk about that in the second half and maybe a little bit deeper in the reflection episode at some point. But I just wanted to address why I'm avoiding Robert Loth this week, not avoiding altogether, I will get there, and why I think Kalov is a valuable person to discuss at this point, really in contrast with all the other ones we've been discussing. So, his life is pretty straightforward here. Abraham Kelov, known also as Kalovius, was born at Malrungen in East Prussia in 1612. So today this would be in Poland. He studied at Königsberg, which is a good Lutheran place for academics, and then went to Danzig. Kelovius served in Danzig as a pastor and a rector of the gymnasium. And then he started to advance in academics through connections and through writing and ended up teaching theology at Wittenberg from 1650 onwards. And he eventually became superintendent there. He outlived five wives and all 13 of his children. Crazy, right? I just thought that was way interesting. Five wives, 13 children. Well, despite the massive family and ecclesiastical duties, like I said, he did some pastoring and academic lecturing, he wrote tons of books. So he wrote approximately 500 different titles, books, articles, etc. 500, including a 12-part 
Systema Locorum Theologicorum, which was from 1655 to 1677. Those are when his 12 parts came out. And that runs about 8,000 pages. So this reference work came around the same time as the Biblia Illustrata. I hope you love these Latin titles which was published 1672 to 1676. So you'll notice that's inside the time frame of that larger Sistema work. But this Biblia Illustrata is four volumes of its own, totaling another 5,800 pages that were all divided into two columns. It seems that someone knew how to pound down the caffeine because that is a ton of output for any type of writer, but especially doing academic research. Wild. But anyways, like I said, his life is pretty straightforward academic and pastoral life. He was teaching and became superintendent at Wittenberg, and he died in Wittenberg in 1686 after doing all of that writing, teaching, and obviously multiple family raising. So I know this is way early, but I do want to have a little extra time for his Old Testament views and primarily the argument that he's having in his Old Testament views. So let's take a quick break here and then jump right into his Old Testament ideas. to discuss Calovius against another thinker. Obviously, I cannot be comprehensive considering his just enormous output, but I think that the contrast will be enlightening, and especially because Calovius made this contrast himself. So the person I'm thinking of is Grotius. If you remember him from way back when in the first episode that I put out, or at least the first one on an actual individual. So I'm going to assume a little knowledge of Grotius here, and I'll try to touch on his viewpoint just as much as I think is necessary to understand where Calovius is coming from. And obviously, I won't go through all of Grotius's reasons or the foundations of his viewpoint because, well, this is an episode on Calovius. So I want to stick with him as much as I possibly can. So Hugo Grotius, I'm wondering why we're doing that. Like I said, he specifically was contrasting with Grotius himself. So, like I said earlier, Calovius wrote his commentary, Biblia Illustrata, that four-volume one, and he wrote it specifically against Grotius. He actually recruited his students to have public sessions where they blasted Grotius's views. 
In fact, they had about 130 of these public roast Grotius sessions from 1658 to 1668. So in about a decade, 130 of these anti-Grotius sessions. The great thing about this is that Grotius was already dead. He had died in 1645, so he couldn't really argue with the debunking of his ideas. Those are always the best people to pick fights with, right? Well, anyhow, his commentary, Biblia Illustrata, his commentary quoted Grotius directly and tried to debunk him line by line. He boiled it down in his commentary to four main issues. One, Grotius failed to disclose the evident, literal sense of the Bible. Two, Grotius did not like the analogy of faith by preferring exotic and profane scriptures. That's his words, exotic and profane scriptures. Three, Grotius indulged in his own tendentious explanations. And fourth, finally, he ignored the true scope of scripture removing Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior, from the Old Testament and presenting him in the New Testament merely in the moral and didactic role of the herald of eternal life and new lawmaker. So the last of these critiques is pretty obvious. Grotius denies the divinity of Christ. He thinks that Jesus is a good moral teacher, lawmaker, perhaps even a good prophet, but not God incarnate who takes away the sins of the world. So this is a little outside the scope of this podcast, and I'm not going to focus a lot on the Christian theology because we're Old Testament. So because of that, I do want to focus more on the first three, and I'm specifically going to talk about his view of the evident literal sense uh, because that is really where he contrasts with what a lot of the other authors have been saying. So let's work backwards. The third one, the tendentious explanations. Besides being upset that Grotius didn't subscribe to the literal inspiration of scripture in the same way that he did, Calovius wasn't happy about Grotius's weighing of different readings. So Grotius would use philology and textual variations from what he believed were older and more reliable manuscripts. To be fair, not all of these proposed emendations to the text were super convincing, at least not to me, and sometimes it seemed like Grotius wanted to change the meaning of the text and either pretend that there was some reason behind it or took an obviously bad alternate reading and made it seem better than it was. Again, those are kind of my views, but either way, Grotius was trying to amend the text, get to a better, more original version of it, and see it in that historical light, looking at all the different manuscripts we have. So, Calovius was really against this method more generally. He didn't like the text-critical stuff, especially when it went against the big heroes, and specifically Martin Luther's translation and text. So there are many places where Clovius takes late readings that were traditional to his time, but claims that they are better than earlier ones, though let's be honest, they aren't better, because he wants to safeguard the divine status of the text. 
So it's the difference in modern ways when people read the King James, which uses the received text versus the eclectic text of most modern translations. They want to do what is the traditional standard text, not try to find the earlier ones. Clovius was doing something very similar to this, arguing for ones that his big Lutheran heroes were reading. But the reasoning is at least somewhat sensible. He wanted to safeguard the divine status of the text. If you start changing it or doubting how accurate it is, then what are you doing to the divinity of it? So, moving to the second critique that's kind of similar. Not only does Clovius dislike this manuscript weighing and rejecting, potentially rejecting the more traditional readings that he likes, he also doesn't like using the, quote, exotic and profane scriptures part. By this phrase, he means non-biblical texts. Remember that Clovius was a good Lutheran, and Martin Luther was nothing if not sold on the Bible as the source of authority. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone, was a huge, huge thing. This was primarily against the Catholic Church, claiming that church doctrine was on the same level as the Bible, but it was also applied generally. So Clovius, in this spirit of only the Bible, wants to only use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Martin Luther said that the church doesn't have exclusive rights to interpret the Bible, but it must speak for itself. The Bible is plain to read for people. Clovius agrees and says that Grotius shouldn't use other texts to make the Bible speak. If you remember from the previous episode, Grotius loved using classical Greek and Jewish sources to help define the Bible and what was happening during that time. If you remember a little later, my concern with that is how he used Greek and Jewish sources to explain the Old Testament when the Old Testament took place hundreds of years before these sources were written. Mine was, there's still a ton of chronological difference in these ancient sources that you are comparing it to. But Clovius's issue isn't the timing thing. His issue is the use of sources generally. He believed using these sources is profaning the biblical text. The Bible explains the Bible, and nothing else should come into that conversation. And Grotius's interpretation is becoming corrupted because of these extra-biblical sources. So, let me give you an example of this. For Clovius, the Song of Solomon... Old Testament book, Song of Solomon, is a poetic description of Christ's love for the church. Jesus loves the church, so this love poem, which is the Song of Solomon, is a poetic description of that. This is Jesus loving the church, even though, if you know your history, the Song of Solomon was written long before the time of Jesus. But it's prophetic, remember? God is speaking through these Old Testament authors, so he is prophesying about future things. God loves the church. But honestly, this kind of interpretation is probably familiar to most people. Many rabbinic interpreters would say the same thing, but that it is about God's love for Israel or God's love for the Jews, because they are rabbis. 
So similar idea, whether it's God loving Israel or Jesus loving the church, get you to the same place. Clovius judged Grotius's literal interpretation of the sexual connotations, because Grotius thinks that this is about literal sex, that the sexual connotations in this book are outright blasphemy. So as Clovius mentions in his commentary, Grotius has been led astray by profane authors like Catullus. So the text of Song of Solomon 1 verses 7 through 8 Remember, it is a dialogue, if you're not familiar with it. The poem Song of Solomon is a dialogue between a man and a woman, the lover and the beloved. And so it uses all of these agricultural metaphors of animals comparing her things to even like your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes who've come up from their washing. It's nice when you have all your teeth and they're white. The point is that it's this long drawn out poem and it's a love poem that many have interpreted as being about God or Jesus being the man and Israel or the church being the woman. So Song of Solomon 1, 7 through 8, the woman says, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Then the man replies, If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your goat and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. End quote. So Grotius read this as a mistress who jokingly threatened to satisfy her desires with her lover's comrades, as it says, like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions, right? Who jokingly threatened to satisfy her desires with her lover's comrades and a lover, the man, who in response exhorted her to act as if she were a goat in heat, as it said, Go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. If you are understanding this as Christ's love for the church, how could you take this interpretation, right? It is theologically confusing at best and quite vulgar in every sense. So personally, I think Grotius is misunderstanding the metaphor but I also think the book is a love story between two human people. So I guess I disagree with Kellov and Grotius. But this is where Kellov is saying Grotius is going way too literal and way too historical. He's reading all of this sex poetry from these ancient Greek and Roman authors. And all of a sudden he thinks that this is literal sex happening in the Song of Solomon, which it's clearly not. It is between Christ and the church. It's the metaphor. So to the next point. Kellogg claims that we should not be too text critical and reinterpret or use alternate manuscripts. Point one. Point two, he claims that we should not use extra biblical sources to interpret the Bible because it 
can and should be used to interpret itself. The different parts clarify each other. And then the final point I want to talk about is the literal evident sense of scripture. This might not mean what you think it means. You might see the literal interpretation as something like Grotius is trying to understand the history behind the text or find a literal meaning that would have made sense to the original audience. But that isn't quite what Kellov means. So Kellovius wanted to read the whole Bible as homogenous. That is to say, the Old and New Testaments are a single voice of God speaking to humanity. More important still, without the New Testament, the Old Testament is incomprehensible. So the New Testament shows the fulfilled promises of the Old Testament and gives the Old Testament authority. But wait, there's more. Most Christians would say that Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but Kellogg claims that the Holy Spirit literally described him coming in the Old Testament. So Grotius tried to separate out the Bible into historical contexts and read them in those historical contexts, but Kellovius tried to put these pieces back together and read it as a unified whole. Not only a unified whole, but one that is clearly referencing itself in both directions. Old referencing new, new referencing old. And a unified whole that requires its entirety to understand it. You cannot understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. Now, these clear references between the Old and New Testaments are important because Calovius wants the Bible to be read as straightforward and obvious as possible. Grotius tried to have a mystical sense to the Bible. He wanted to read the Old Testament in its historical context, but then have this deeper theological or Christological meaning, kind of like the Oracle of Delphi in ancient Greek thought, that there's many layers to the Oracle. However, Kellogg totally rejects this. For him, scripture has only one interpretation, and figurative meanings are only allowed when the text clearly indicates this intention. For example, the Song of Solomon. Now, part of this is that he wants the Bible to be open and obvious for everyone, and he wants to elevate Jesus specifically in the Old Testament, because Jesus is the center of all of the readings. However, it also pushes his reading away from the historical side of Grotius and makes the Bible more of an object of faith. So you read the text on its own without recourse to historical events or other texts. Let me give you a couple examples of this. One, Psalm 2, just the whole chapter, Psalm 2. King David is traditionally seen as the speaker of this, and it is about him asking for God's help from his enemies. Grotius applied the words to David himself. Remember, that's the common interpretation. But Calovius argued that the psalm expressed the Holy Spirit's literal prediction of the coming of Christ. 
David was not expressing his hatred of the warring Philistines, Moabites, or other Semitic peoples, but rather through the predictive force of the Holy Spirit, he was describing the common opposition that all peoples, and Jewish leaders in particular, would have to Christ at the time of the New Testament. This is a very different way of claiming literal and obvious. To understand where Clovis is coming from, you have to look at the whole canon and then read Jesus back into the Old Testament. So things can almost be assumed to be about Jesus. Let me give another example of this Christological reading. So Leviticus 8 is about the consecration of the first priest by Moses. The Aaronic priesthood and the Levites were established by Moses. Anyways, it's about the consecration of the first priest by Moses. Instead of commenting on grammar or syntax in that passage, Colovius is asking the question, who are priests? Kalov argues that the events here should be related to Exodus 29 because that shows how consecration is done. So Moses was a prophet of the Lord, and in other places in the Old Testament, prophets anoint kings. That is, until the priestly line is set up, and then priests take over the consecration process. So Moses, the prophet, anoints Aaron, the first priest. And then he dives into the Jesus part. So the process is, Aaron must be washed because he needs purification. He then has to be adorned with sacred clothing because, being deformed by sins, he is not allowed to go forwards without the clothing of the innocence of Christ, whose breastplate alone gleams with clarity and integrity, which was made known in the Urim and Thummim, Aaron's time, but in the time of Christ, he is the breastplate of clarity and integrity. So Leviticus 8 is about the priesthood, but as a witness to Christ, by the clothing of the innocence of Christ. In other scholars of the time talked about Colovius's ability with Hebrew and Greek and his scholarly aptitude, but this kind of interpretation doesn't really touch on the actual phrasing of the passage necessarily, but on the framework of the canon of Jesus being central and the New Testament being used to interpret the Old Testament. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Kalov was ignorant. He clearly understood Grotius's interpretation, and he even argued against Spinoza and Simon. He was definitely aware of the arguments and was able to make comprehensive rebuttals in favor of his Lutheran view. His arguments centered around explaining the Bible with the Bible. He could make connections throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament and believed that this was the way forward. If a passage is unclear, then look to another passage to explain it. Looking at the historical backgrounds or extra-biblical text is unhelpful and might actually lead you astray. We should be able to understand the book by reading it 
and connecting the dots. It is a unified whole and it should be read in its most literal sense as that unified whole to see what God is plainly saying and how the Bible is referring to itself. This is definitely a deep theological and grammatical approach to the text, but one that arrives at a much more theologically orthodox, yet to me kind of textually odd, view than the people that we've been discussing recently. So that is where I'll leave us with Kalov today. He was definitely interested in how the Bible related to itself rather than how the Bible related to history. He was also much more concerned with deriving correct orthodoxy out of both the Old and New Testament and seeing them plainly speak about God rather than reconnecting them to what they would have meant historically or to original audiences or to a re- original author. He was seeing the Holy Spirit speaking through those authors in one unified single work that has been handed down to us. So, like I said, I'm going to stop here with Kellov. The next episode, I'm actually going to do on one of his students, David Hallitz. I'm again splicing this in because I feel like we've not hit enough of the conservative views, and I want to give just a nod to that other side because they were interacting with the more critical scholars that we have been talking about. So Hallitz is going to be in the Lutheran vein as well, and I want to touch specifically on his reading of the Old Testament and what he sees as clear Trinitarian speech in the Old Testament. So please subscribe, rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening, and join me in two weeks for David Hallitz. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you would like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about the Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening.